Hello and welcome to the Learning From Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Today, uh, I'm going to be talking to a, a guy who started a great business just pretty well during the GFC. That business is called Mumbrella. I'm sure many of you have read that website, uh, fantastic coverage of media, marketing and advertising. Um, if you want to know what's going on in the media world, Mumbrella is the, the place to go without a doubt. Well, the guy who started that business was Tim Burrows and Tim's joins us on the program to talk about his latest book called Media Unmade. And he looks at the last 10 years or so where there have been enormous changes in the world of the media. This is a guy who has a very interesting take on something that we all care about, namely radio, television, and all the advertising stuff that goes with it. So sit back and relax and listen to, to me grilling and talking to my old mate, Tim Burrows. So I'm talking to, I guess you'd have to call him a new age legend of uh, Australian media. His name is Tim Burrows. He was a founder of a website that lots of people go to nowadays called Mumbrella. And he's got a new book out called Media Unmade. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about who Tim Burrows is and where the idea from Mumbrella came from. Tim, thanks for joining us. Peter, that's a very kind and flattering and possibly overgenerous description. So thank you very much. Okay, well, you can actually you know, redefine who you are and how important you are um, as we go along. So, <laughs> uh, okay, I, I'm going to try and use my memory here to kick this off because you, know, you used to come on my Sky Business um, program when Mumbrella seemed to be quite new. So uh, I started doing that. Uh, business program in 2008, um, 2007, really, just before the um, the GFC you know, came upon us. So when did Mumbrella start? Yeah, it was very similar. It was December 2008, so uh, we're approaching our 12th birthday at the end of this year. Mm. Okay, so I thought was, you were pretty new at the time. Um, who were the founders? Yeah, so the, the the way it works as founders, there were two of us active in the business and then a third who, who helped provide some financial support. So there was myself, there was uh, Martin Lane, who was a previous colleague over at B&T Magazine, which mm. was published by Reading Business Information. And that was, that was the job that brought me into Australia and Martin had been the publisher there previously. And then, uh, then Ian Wakeling was the, uh, was the investor who at the time owned some travel publications. So we, in the early days, we worked out of TNT's offices. TNT, anyone who used to hang out in backpacker pubs would remember that kind of newspaper mm. lying around free for backpackers. So we, we share a tiny bit of DNA with that, I suppose. Okay. So that was um, what you said, 2008, did you say? Correct, that's okay. right. All right, so um, why Mumbrella? Like, it's, it's, it's such a British-sounding name, and you are, <laughs> believe it or not, British or English. So where, where did Mumbrella come from? Yeah, look, I, I was trying to figure out something that captured – the M's of media and marketing, mm. because that was going to be the the community that we were we were talking to, and I wanted to 
own a word that didn't really exist. You know, it's just easier when it comes to things like URLs and search engine optimization and all of those things. So I eventually kind of landed on the word mumbrella where I think there'd once there'd been a cartoon at some point of a, a mum shielding, you know, a kangaroo mum shielding her, uh, her baby with the caption mumbrella. And I think also at some point BMW had had a part trademarked as Mumbrella, but no, nothing in our space. So it was it was gettable as a trademark. But the moment that really made my mind up for it was I, I was in a pub in Surrey Hills with a uh, contact who was a, a good friend as well, worked in a, in a media agency, also British as it happens. And I told him, and being a strategist and an advertising wanker, his, his first kind of reaction was, mum is such a warm word semantically, yeah. so you should do it. So, so of course, it then meant that, you know, when, when we were unknown, every single phone call I would make, you know, trying to go through a receptionist to speak to people would start with, like umbrella, but with an M in front, <laughs> time and time again, as I tried to explain what it was. And then, of course, a, a decade of um, public relations people mixing us up with Mamma Mia. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise you had that potential problem. I must admit, I always thought, well, being British, you would just live with an umbrella. And, you, <laughs> and I always figured you probably were a mummy's boy, and that's where my, my <laughs> umbrella came from. But that's well, me, me being too. Well, my, my mother does like to listen to these podcasts, so you never know. She might end <laughs> up listening to this one. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I actually I reject the tyranny of umbrellas. I figure that I might as well get wet one time in ten for the yeah. misery of carrying it the other nine times. So <laughs> not such a user, actually. No, you are outside the square Brit, I would, I would say. Now, so... <laughs> So, all right, but also the the success in building up the Mumbrella brand name, Tim. You know, when you think about it, you were competing with media sections in newspapers, um, I guess Media Week, which um, tends to be purely for the industry. What you've been able to do is ha- attract the industry and all the, the normal people out there who think media is so important that, that they want to read about it, are they the two core audiences you've got or is it, are there other people as well that I've not thought of? Yeah, look, I'm, it, it's a tap dance because I guess certainly when you're advertising supported, some parts of your audience kind of counts double. You know, so so I suppose in terms of our business model, it's always been about organising events and conferences for the industry and industry insiders. And of course, when advertisers come with us, particularly they want to speak to marketers with big budgets. Mm. So often it's the media companies, the media owners beating their chests saying, hey, you know, Channel 7, we got the Olympics, you really should be advertising with us. Mm. So it's those sort of messages. Um, so... And I suppose it tends to be that because the media is intrinsically interesting, then we would attract a wider audience as well. But, but you know, it would very much be through the lens of um, writing for the industry, not for the general public. So mm. we, we talk about they, the general public, not we, the general public. Mm. But, but you have to concede, and I, and I just know because I know normal people, and arguably they, they work in the media, but they're not really reading you you know, because they go to your conferences or anything like that. They're just interested in all the gossip that you get involved in because you do get in gossip, don't you? And this gossip, that's really interesting for lots of people. 
Yeah, look, and I suppose because I've, you know, originally came up through a newspaper background where, of course, you have all of that dark and shade. You have news stories, you have features, you have the gossip in the diary columns, all of those things. So I suppose everything I've ever really done in the trade press, whether it was Mumbrella with Mumbrella or whether it was with, hey, even when I was editing a magazine called Hospital Doctor in the UK. Hospital Doctor. always been Hospital Doctor, yes, NHS consultants who, who, funnily enough, you know, they're uh, obviously very different to media folk in that you know they're uh they're 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 arrogant they they work hard play hard they take too many illicit substances so it like very very different <laughs> i was gonna well you'll have to be the judge of that peter <laughs> are you very very kind to the media not being like that but look okay so so that's your background i i, I must say i have always loved what seems to be nearly like the logical naming of stuff in the UK. You know, like, for example, uh, uh, your magazine, Hospital Doctor. Who is it for? Hospital Doctor. Uh, yeah, there, there seems to be, look at some of the government department names in the UK. They also are very logical. That's very true. Arrowdite, Woodseal, does what it says on the tin. <laughs> okay. Let's get down to... Um, the importance of media in Australia compared to the UK, is it very similar or are we more preoccupied with media personalities and the news that comes out of the media? Do you know, there's probably a two-part answer to that question because I, I would argue that media is really important in any, certainly any kind of democratic-based country you know it it makes a part of the culture it drives the culture it's you know it, it absolutely is that the, the the heartbeat of it and that's the same in the uk the same here in australia i think where maybe there's a slight difference in australia is the media itself probably talks about itself a little more mm. so you know the, the, the you know the media is kind of fascinated by the media so you know the i remember one of the things that surprised me when i arrived in australia 15 years ago was the the concept that uh, eddie Maguire, a game show host should be the ceo of an asx listed company in channel 9 was <laughs> yeah. was yeah. pretty was pretty surprising yeah and also eddie uh, represented victoria at the the constitutional um uh, get together in Canberra, you know, like it's yeah. We we do rate our media personalities very very highly. Do, do you think the the English or the Brits are a little bit more cynical about their their great media personalities, like Pe- like peers? Are. Yeah, look, they probably are. Um, and if you kind of think about the media owners as well as the media personalities, you know, for instance, the attitude to Rupert Murdoch was very different. You know, just, you know, there was just as much influence in the UK with the Times, the Sunday mm. Times, the Mirror, the Sun. There was the Today newspaper for a while as well. Yet that sort of nickname that Private Eye gave it, the Dirty Digger, kind of stuck around. And you, you, you know, one of the things I really remember noticing when I arrived in Australia was friends who worked at News Corp in Australia were kind of proud of it. And they'd, they'd call him Uncle Rupert and they'd only be half joking. Mm. Whereas in the UK, people were probably a little bit more embarrassed maybe mm, mm. Uh, be- because of the way that people talked about these organizations but but yeah you're right sort of talking about someone like Piers Morgan you know who's, who who is 
been brilliant at parlaying each career disaster to an even bigger opportunity you know mm. so he you know he went from uh briefly working as a news of the world editor you know i think the youngest one ever um didn't go particularly well he had a couple of you know bad judgments and got told off but used that to get the job as the editor of the mirror sacked from the mirror over you know allegedly publishing faked photographs and it was never 100 percent public proved whether they were faked or not. This was about the behavior of the British army. Used that to then start writing a series of brilliantly written books that were so entertaining. Uh, and that just turned him into the sort of personality where he was then able to parlay it into a career in the US where he became, you know, a, a talent show show judge. And then of course became that sort of spokes, you know, sort of a, a you know, TV host who became controversial um, and arguably who, who you know, whose um, who's stocks have risen even more just by getting himself fired over the whole mm. Meghan uh, Markle cynicism. Yeah. And of course, you know, replacing Larry King was a, was a big step for a, a Brit to get that kind of job. Uh, in many ways, and I don't know whether you've been able to get the historical perspective on Australian media, but D Darren Hinch was like that in the old days. He was described as the human uh, human headline. Some people call him a human hemorrhoid, but the human headline was his... Uh, uh, and, and you're right, he, he, he really got enormous attraction and we love talking about Darren. Yeah, look, and there are people like that, aren't there? So you've got the Darrens, you've, or you've just got the people who are so huge in the pantheon and they so dominated a moment of culture. So, you know, um, Graham Kennedy, for instance, mm. you know, sort of earlier on, or, um, you know, whether there's somebody who's a multimedia star in the same way now, gosh, I mean, you, I'm not sure this is quite there, but, you know, you think about the way that, Russell Highcroft now has come through from, you know, media executive with 10 mm. to, well, advertising executive to media executive to panellist on Gruen and the Gruen transfer to now, you know, um, presenting the the, the, the the number one um, breakfast show in, 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 in Melbourne. Mm. So certainly in terms of a city personality, then then you might say that the next person along is perhaps Russell Howcroft. Mm. Don't think he will have the same low values of some of the other people you've mentioned so far, but who knows? The media can change people. All right, and this is what you're talking about. And I, I, I'm going to be fair to say I'm going to let you tell me what media unmade is all about and we'll go from there. Yeah, so it's it's a project that that I worked on over the last few months, and and as you say, we're just just publishing it now with Hardy Grant, and it really looks at the development of the media over the last decade. So that that well, it's become a twelve year decade now of that that decade of two thousand ten through to two thousand twenty one, and. You know, I, 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 I guess it matches the period that Mumbrella was around, so I was looking quite closely. Yep. And it felt to me like there was a story or stories to be pulled out that went beyond just saying, here's what happened at Channel 9, here's what happened at Channel 7, but trying to pull the threads together of actually telling it like a story. Mm. So um, so that, 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 that was the project of the last few months and, you know, and a number of themes come through. So, you know, if you look back to, say... June 2012, you've got that dreadful week when in the space of two or three days, 
Greg Highwood at Fairfax Media announces that he's making 1,600 journalists redundant. You've then got, in within a couple of days of that, you've got News Corp making 1,900 people redundant with Kim Williams as the leader. You know, 3,500 media jobs gone in the space of a week. Never been a week like it. The, 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 the future funding, funding of journalism, more challenged than ever. And, you know, I say this as a journalist who you know, in my 30 years, there haven't been many moments when the future has not looked bleaker than the past. And yet we got to the end of this decade and suddenly we had quite, a, if not an ending, a punctuation point where funding models emerged. You know, it was, it was really grubby, but what the ACCC did with the news media bargaining code and the, the government effectively leaning on Google and leaning on Facebook to give uh, tens of millions of dollars to the big media owners has safeguarded the, the, the business model of certainly large scale mainstream journalism for the, for the near future. So that, that was just one of the stories or threads I pulled out, but mm. it certainly felt like it was a, it, it, it was a decade where there was a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. Unmade. Why unmade? <laughs> Do you know what we, we 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 just a tiny bit? We probably hark back to my previous conversation about finding a word I could own. Um, so it does feel like it, it 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 sums up the fact that everything had to be ripped up and started again. It had to be unmade. But also, of course, it's a word that's not that common. So so I kind of I I I I. I do feel like it's a word that um, that in the future, if I do more with it beyond the book, will be a will be a word I can hopefully uh, hopefully own, like I did Mumbrella when I owned that. Okay. Well, l- let me help you with the unmade aspect of the media. So, over the last ten, twelve years, we've seen journalists get paid a lot less. Um, you know, I, I can remember when I was writing for the. Sun Herald and then the Australian newspaper, you know, the the bottom line was a dollar a word. There aren't there aren't too many normal journalists getting a dollar a word. Um, big name commentators you can drag in an audience, sure they get they get more than that, but that's changed a lot. That's a, an unmade aspect of it. Um, journalists being prevailed upon by advertisers. Indirectly as opposed to directly. I, I, I wouldn't think many journalists um, would be prevailed upon directly by an editor or publisher to do something nice about um, a company. But I, I think if there, was a, if there was a journalist nowadays who was saying something really terrible about a big advertiser in either a television station, radio station or a newspaper, doing it on a regular basis, I think someone would be asking a question, do you really need to do that? What do you think, Tim? Look, I think, yeah, two points. Firstly, on, on the, the just the cost of journalists and journalism, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you, you know, if if you look at you know, one of the parts of the process that allowed the Fairfax newspapers or nine newspapers as they are now to survive, it was the rounds of costs that was the the, the cost cutting mm. that took so much cost out, you know, and one of the things they did was they 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 made all of the, uh, the sub editors redundant, sent the subbing over to New Zealand. And then of course, when they brought it back later, sometimes hired back the very pe- same people, mm. the redundancy payouts are gone, but they're on much lower salaries the second time round. And, you know, it was, it was recutting the cloth. So to that point, absolutely the business models changed as, as, as well. And then I think, yeah, the influence of the, I mean, the influence of advertising has, 
has always been there. I was always tried to, you know, my very first local newspaper, you know, I can remember my news editor would make a sport of it. Somebody would ring up and they'd start talking, say, well, I'm a big advertiser with you. And he would just quietly transfer them through to the advertising department. Those were the days, mate. Those were the days. Those were the days. There's probably, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I guess the, you know, the, the question now is, is the advertisers probably at least, you know, and arguably deserve, but certainly get a degree of respect, mm. you know. So, I, I, you know, the, the thing I would always say to Mumbrella's sort of editors was, you know, Firstly, your job is to represent the reader. That's why we have an audience. That's why we have a business model. So you're only working for the reader. And that means that absolutely, you know, help the advertising team if you can. But your main job is to be the filter for the reader and be be genuinely sorry when you can't. But there will be times when you can't. And that, you know, that, that, that I think is the long-term model for the survival of journalism is trust from the audience. Now, the problem comes along when you get advertising people or publishers who are on salaries and they're, they're bonused against the next quarter or the next half. So they've got to do some numbers right now. And it's when there's that sort of disparity between the short-term incentives and the long-term incentives that you get the risk of uh, actually doing something that's not in the interest of the publication. Mm. Um, and that, that, I think, is one reason, actually, why long-term owners are a pretty good thing. Mm. Have you addressed the issue that uh, media have um, new rivals, uh, people with websites, uh, influencers? People, like, like when I was made a commentator, I, I had to impress somebody and someone said, hey, that guy... He's got something to say. We'll, we'll pay him to do it. But now anyone can do it. And if they've got a bit of talent, they can actually attract a lot of people. And then they often attract advertisers and maybe they get influenced by the advertisers. But that's a new new part of the media, isn't it? Yeah, look, and that was absolutely one of the themes is, you know, again, if we look back at the start of the decade, if you wanted to start a magazine or a newspaper, you probably had to had to mortgage the house, you know, mm. just to just to get the first edition out the door. You know, one of the one of the stories we look at is the story of Anthony Catalano, who was made redundant from Fairfax, then started his own property weekly property title in in, in uh, Melbourne initially, which disrupted Fairfax so much through that they they eventually had to buy him out. He became for a while the biggest shareholder in Fairfax before coming out the other end mm. as um, the owner of Australian community media, you know, uh, uh, the, the the latest and maybe the last media mogul. But the point was he had to start by uh, putting everything he had on the line, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in his redundancy payout, loans and everything else. Whereas now somebody can come along and, and you know, for the price of some cheap email, a WordPress website or whatever, a bit of social media activity, then absolutely, if they're good enough, they can find an audience. And, you know, sometimes that's, sometimes that's online publications. Obviously, as you say, there's, there's the influencer space, whether we talk about, you know, the people who are, you know, plugging the latest kind of, you know, diet drink on Instagram or whatever. And then, of course, you get the kind of the rise of the YouTube commentator as well, who, mm. who can often make a lot of money just directly through advertising, as well as if they've got a really active sort of support base, you know, money through Patreon and that sort of funding as well. Mm, most definitely. So, you know, putting it all together, um, what are, what are the big conclusions that you make in the book that people, that might surprise a few people? I think one of the conclusions that I, I, I guess satisfied me 
was the fact that we got to the, the, the end of the decade and things looked a little bit better for journalism than at the start. One of the things that depressed me was um, the rise of polarisation mm. and across the board, you know, with uh, in social media, but also in traditional media and just the business logic behind that. So for newspapers and also subscription news channels, TV news channels as well, where advertising is no longer the main means of funding, but it's people choosing to subscribe. That means you serve a smaller audience and give them what you want, which means polarisation. And similarly, you know, the, 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 the algorithms and, you know, particularly sort of last year during the, during the final months of Trump, you know, on Twitter, but also on Facebook and, and YouTube too, drove radicalism. You know, the, I, I think without social media, without, certainly without the influence of Fox News and without the influence of Twitter, I don't think the Capitol would have been stormed in January this year. Um, you know, that there's one of the, one of the most dangerous moments for democracy um, we've ever seen, and um, and and it was it, it was all driven by media. Mm. You you kind of like implying that tribalism has um, dominated the media, and we know that you know um, you know Sky is more right wing than it used to be. The ABC is more left wing than it used to be. Do you think that's going to change, or do you think we're kind of stuck with this? That the ABC realised that their audience primarily wants this kind of coverage of news and, and Sky has worked out their audience wants this coverage of news. Are we stuck with this tri um, tribalism? Look, I, I agree with some of that and disagree with some of that. You know, I think where media brands are paid for directly by the audience then I think we probably are because that's the business model behind it. And there's a, there's a logic to it. And it's, you know, you choose the audience and you give the audience what they want. And often that's something to the right or something mm. to the left. Um, I'd argue the ABC is a, is a different model because it, it's, it's long-term health and future is being rigorously impartial and independent. And when it's not, that's when it potentially lets itself down. Um, I think, you know, one of the dangers at the moment for it is there's actually far too much commentary from some ABC staff on social media, which potentially confuses the audience about, um, about where the ABC as a whole stands. So, you know, I think there's, the, you know, there's, the, you know, there's a lot of nuance to be had there because, you know, the job of public, service public interest journalism is to be super challenging to whoever's in power at the time and whoever the power bases are so that and that i think can be perceived as taking sides when it's just holding uh, holding power to account but at the same time it can become unnecessarily confused when people actually are taking sides on social media um so i you know i i i would argue that sometimes that's the bit that goes too far and changes the perceptions but i would argue that absolutely the the ethos or the strategy of the ABC should be absolute impartiality. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, I, I'd be more comfortable if there was you know, a identifiable right-wing commentator on the ABC, and, and I guess, to be fair, uh, an identifiable left-wing commentator on Sky. Um, yes, yeah. look, I suppose you've got Amanda Vanston. I think I've I've heard of Tom Switzer from time to time, yeah. um, but not many. Not many. 
Not many, yeah. Yeah, I, I look, look, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm on Sky and I'm, I'm also on the ABC. So, yes. So I'm, I'm just, I just think that um, once upon a time, like there was a guy called, um, before your time, um, Frank Crook. He used to do the afternoon program on the ABC. And Frank was a, a cranky old bastard. And, uh, and he was very, not, very much not like an ABC commentator. And, and, and the guy like Andrew Ollie was, he could swing to left and right. And Paul Lynham as well. I just think that I'd like to see that kind of thing prevailing um I don't see as much so more and i think in many ways it is because you need an audience uh, and the audience often want to hear those sorts of things but anyway that's by the by final um comments if a person hasn't come across mumbrella before and they saw this wonderful book in both good and bad bookshops <laughs> I always say that when people say, "Is your book available in good book bookshops?" I said, "Good and bad. I don't care as long as people buy it." What do you think is going to be the, the great take-home message from the book, um, Tim? Look, I, I mean, I think the thing that I really enjoy about writing about the media and the marketing and advertising industry is it's so interesting. So much happens. So many interesting people. There's so much passion in there um, and it matters. Mm. And hopefully what I've done with the book is captured a little bit of that. So, you know, uh, certainly what I don't think it is, is is, is not a dry recap of share prices over the last 10 years. Mm. You know, hopefully I've, 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 I've told a bit of the story of the, you know, the, the, the people who won and also the people who tried really hard and lost as well. So there are, there are winners, there are losers, there are, um, and also I suppose that's the other thing I was surprised when I counted up a lot more tears in there than you'd think, even, you know, even quite powerful executives cry when mm. they get fired. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic reading. I've got to say, I'm so busy, I won't really get to finish it until Christmas, but I'm really looking forward to it, mate. Well, the audio version might be out by then, so you never know. <laughs> oh, no, I, I want to read like a good old-fashioned person, but at the moment, I haven't got much time. I'm doing. I'm actually reading the share prices of companies and things like that. That's what I do. <laughs> but Tim Burrows, thanks for joining us on uh, my program. I look forward to uh, catching up with you in the future, and I recommend to everybody out there, Media Unmade by Tim Burrows. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's the show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure you tell all your friends and family to listen to the Learning From Legends program with Peter Switzer. And also, if you want to make some money, have a look at the Switzer Report, switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>